Demir, are you going to run for senator? I, I told... No, Shadi's running for senator. You oh, told me sorry, you want Shadi. Yeah. Sorry, I, I forgot who I was talking to. Shadi, Dr. <laughs> Wait, Oz. Wait, I'm running? Dr. Yes. Oz in, in Pennsylvania, right? I'm the, I'm I want to draft Shaddy to run for Senate. I, I've That's always cool. thought Shaddy would make a really good politician. <laughs> Wait, do, are you seriously? We've talked yes. about this before, Shaddy. I think oh. it's a natural fit <laughs> in some ways. Well, thank you. I mean, I could ask why you think that, but I, we don't need this to be like saying nice things about Shaddy. Uh, well, it could be not nice things about Shaddy, you know, <laughs> like the, the the ego desires of a politician. I think it's these are all things that are a natural fit. How's that for not nice <laughs> things about Shaddy? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, wait, so Dr. Oz, though, is the idea that you want me to run against Dr. Oz? I was saying, like, we don't need Dr. Oz. Uh, poor, so what, my, Omar, by the end of this, you're going to be a scholar of American politics because the best observers of our politics are foreigners. But, mm. oh, I, by the end of this, by the end of this being uh, the end of the, you know, your, your stay in the United States, I guess, Omar. Not, well, even, not the end of this podcast. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think we give Omar an hour. He can master it. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, but let's talk about, uh, about um, we're rolling already, just so you know, but let's, let's talk about, about uh, other things rather than U.S. politics, I think. Uh, Shadi, we've got our, 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 uh, our good friend, Jen Mortazishvili, back on the line with us here. And she's joined, uh, uh, she's joined by her colleague, uh, Omar Sadr. Jen, how you doing? Well, how are you? Uh, I'm well. Shadi, how are you? It's been a while. How, lo- to- how long is it since we had Jen on? Two months? Three months? It was when the crisis in Afghanistan was unfolding. Um, so that's three months ago. That, I think that was in, in a- August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it feels like a long time ago. It has been sort of a while. Uh, I don't know, Jen. How are you doing? Hanging in there. To me, it seems like yesterday because things have been pretty nonstop for us uh, since those events unfolded. Yeah. So, uh, so a lot is going on, and I just want to say that it's it's really a thrill to be back here with both of you. And um, the the biggest honor here is actually that we're sharing this podium with Dr. Omar Sadr, uh, who is a uh, eminent political scientist. He is a professor at the American University of Afghanistan. Uh, in Kabul, and he's just joined us here at the University of Pittsburgh as a senior scholar at our Center for Governance and Markets. And uh, over the past couple of months, we have launched, well, we're actually launching it just this week, but we've been working very hard on putting this together, um, a platform for Afghan scholars in exile. And Omar is uh, our first and our leader here, and uh, we're really excited to have him here, but it's been it's been quite a journey for Omar. Yeah. Omar, welcome. Um, I don't know. I, yeah. You know, I mean, I think there's so much to talk about. I, I guess it has been. I, Jen, did you tell me when we were talking about this earlier, was it some anniversary or am I mixing something up? Uh, so it was 100 days of the Taliban takeover. I think that was about 10 days ago. 10 days so, ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's 100 days. People have been looking at what's happened over this 100 days. Yeah. That's that, that unfortunate thing that in American politics, you have that first 100 days of a presidency. But this is quite different, I think. Uh, that's kind of grim marker. I, so, Omar, I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe sort of to get us talking about this, you could tell us a little bit about uh, your experience you know, a hundred days ago, a hundred some days ago, what was it like uh, in in Afghanistan? I mean, just sort of, you know, the the final days as the regime fell, and then and then, how did you get out? What's what's the story there? Okay, sure, sure. Uh, but uh, firstly, let me please uh, to thank you 
for this opportunity. I am truly honored and humbled by this opportunity here to talk with you on the post podcast, but also um, I think the opportunity that Professor Murtzashvili provided um, for not only me, but wider at-risk scholars from Afghanistan to continue their academic endeavor here in the United States at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, well, now, last 100 years, uh, 100 days, my apologies, or more, it has been uh, somehow uh, horrible uh, in terms of both psychological tension and pressure that uh, we, I mean, I'm, I as an individual, as a citizen of Afghanistan, as a scholar, multiple layers of identity that I was carrying with myself, undergone that trauma, that um, kind of sense of anxiety and fear. Um, I think uh, as a scholar of political science, I'm aware that how discipline of political science engages with the, this idea of state collapse or collapse of political order. It's mainly about how institutions collapse, right? Mm. Sociologists are also interested in looking at this issue from a different angle, probably looking from the how the cohesion and relationship between society and state unfolds. Scholars like uh, you and uh, Shadi are interested in how, for example, the the mainstream Islamist movements interact with the with institutions like state, democracy, stability, and so on and so forth that you have uh, Shadia have written on um, his books. But now for me, apart from all of these, uh, it was a kind of personal experience. So I, I felt and I observed state failure in person uh, on the day of 15th of August that, uh, that literally that transition, the violent transition of power from the previous Republic government to the Taliban took place. Um, because on that day, I somehow, it happened to me that I went out of um, my house, despite the fact that it was quite risky, but I roamed around the city um, and I observed how this scenario was unfolding and how that transformation was changing. It was like um, the way that you see that police stations are abandoned, people are anxious, fearful, some people are running towards their houses, offices are abandoned, while people in the morning, they went to their offices by 11 or 12, um, uh, 11 a.m. or 12 p.m., they realized that they, the Taliban are entering the city. So, so literally, that bureaucratic capacity of the state was at at one moment it collapsed all of a sudden. And of course, it was not abrupt because, um, as an observer, we knew that how things were unfolding, and at least since the beginning of August. But uh, but yeah, I mean, as an individual, I had um, different feelings about this. Um, now, now at the United States here, I'm coping with with different kind of sentiments like state uh, homelessness, the sense of anxiety, homesickness, and but also how how, how can I redefine my identity? Um, dealing with, for example. Um, uh, with a very radical, violent insurgent group controlling Kabul, which has forced us to seek exile. And this is something which is unwelcomed or something. I, I didn't want this way to happen. Uh, but Omar, could I ask, um, how, how much of a surprise was it? I mean, what were you feeling in the days leading up to August 15th, the day that the Taliban took over. I mean, uh, as you know, for, for most of us in the U.S., almost all of us, that it would happen so suddenly was 
was surprising and at least somewhat unexpected. But um, maybe tell us a little bit about how how you saw those final days. Hmm. Uh, well, a couple of factors were important, I think. One is that um, it was clear by by May and June that a political settlement, uh, which was the negotiations in Qatar, was somehow faced a deadlock, and the Taliban were not ready to give concessions which were necessary for a smooth transition of power. On the other hand, um, the others may also argue that it was the Republic or the government uh, led by President Ashraf Ghani who was also not willing to give so much concession. So there was a political deadlock on that end and which uh, which made us question how this process will end up. Uh, on the other hand, um, the, the incompetent government was not able to deliver on in terms of its uh, promises, primarily in terms of security, while while the top leadership was engaged in corruption, but at the same time, they didn't know how to prioritize policies. For example, on the days approaching collapse of Kabul, instead of uh, um, directly dealing with the primary security issues, for instance, president was just engaged with some other um, policy staff, which was not at least expected to, to uh, that president should spend time on it. Um, so, you, we had a stage which like, was he was holding like the procurement meeting. I mean, exactly. he was like famously like he was sitting in Kabul, uh, having a meeting of his national procurement council, talking about like a dam in Kunduz, and like the government didn't even control Kunduz anymore. But so, right. I mean, the the the. I guess to to then follow up on, on Shanti's question, I mean exactly that though. So there's a sense of unreality in the government. Omar, what's the feeling like on the ground for you? Do you, I mean, at at what point was it clear that that the Americans were out and that this was all coming down? You know, I mean, the 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 sort of run up to it, where you you had to have been at least somewhat caught by surprise by, by how quickly it went, or did you feel that something was going wrong and this was heading down this direction? Well, of course, the time that Americans, I think Biden administration, uh, announced that the United States is no more committed to the stable because everyone was waiting for the change of administration here in Washington. And, and at least the, to some level, there was an expectation that that kind of hasty measures or irrational policies, which were taken by President Trump and the way, for example, he appeased Taliban, literally, he said, I remember that, well, Taliban are good fighters. They are good guys. I can deal with them. Um, uh, so that way, I think we had certain expectations, but I, I, we also appreciated the fact that there may not be a fundamental policy shift uh, to abandon the talks with the Taliban and move back towards a uh, battlefield. However, what we rationally tried to assume was that, okay, at least there should be certain form of um, uh, uh, rationality to this talk that the way how we are going to approach Taliban or at least negotiate with them, with them, right? But it was, I think, on 25th of April that General Miller announced that withdrawal has already started. Uh, so there were estimations are different, but total of 30,000 troops were there. Amongst uh, 2,500 was used troops. But now that was, I think, the, the time that the shock came because to a large extent, the morale of the army and and the, the people also to somehow, and uh, they were habitualized to rely as on a big partner, the United States. Uh, so uh, I think after 25th of April, 
which General Miller announces, things slowly and uh, gradually changed. The, no, it was not just about moral or psychological dimension, but also it was about some, some material dimension of it. For example, in terms of procurement, in terms of logistics, in terms of air support, the National Army was, uh, to a large extent, over 70 to 80 percent dependent on the U.S. forces. So. Um, Without having that support, I think the army faced a kind of vacuum, and and they were not able to um, to um, uh, to reach out to the to the all sides of the country. Somehow, they, without with less resources, they were stretched. Uh, however, now the wrong policy calculations also took place because President Rashad Ghani blamed the Americans that well, in the last 18 years, you people didn't allow us to fight. Now we are free, so now we can decide independently on policies and move forward. While he didn't know that to what extent corruption has dismantled the state structure, to what extent his patrimonial politics has ruined um, the, uh, the integrity of the system and institutions. So, yeah, so I think um, it was understandable that, uh, that, that things are not in a right path. But, but at least since beginning of August, there were so many unverified uh, reports coming that Taliban has slowly and gradually infiltrated the cities, including Kabul. So there was a, a public sense of anxiety in the city that, well, things, has, uh, things are out of control. And that's why it was by, the, by early August that most of the high-ranking government bureaucrats, policymakers, they, they decided to move out and most of them booked their flights uh, to Turkey or some other places. So this is this shows to what extent, for example, bureaucrats who were uh, working in a higher positions they were disassociated with with the society. Mm. Already, they have moved out their families to to third countries, but they were only themselves there. Now, at the end, they decided to move out of the country. So I think I think one thing that's very hard for Americans to understand is just what it's like to kind of face an invading army and then to have to make very personal decisions about whether to stay or whether to go. Um, and, you know, there's a timeline there where different people start thinking about backup plans, other countries they can go to, how they evacuate family members, so on and so forth. And, you know, on one level, if you're committed to Afghanistan, you don't want to leave prematurely. You you want to actually be committed to the country. On the other hand, once you become certain that the Taliban is coming in and you don't like the Taliban or you're seen as an enemy of the Taliban, then you have to start thinking about what your own future and livelihood is. So could you maybe walk us through your own calculations? Um, did you think about leaving before the fall of Kabul or on the day of is when you started to take it more seriously or afterwards? Tell us a bit more about that. Well, I think uh, personally for me, this is the second time that we face the same sort of situation. Uh, if not me personally, but at least in my family, uh, the earlier generation, my father faced the same thing. Um, the time in 92, the government of Afghanistan back then, the communist uh, government collapsed to the Islamist Mujahideen. And uh, yeah, so they had to leave the city, they have to leave whatever they had um, and move in this place. Um, I, I, I have faced the same thing. I think um, till 15th of August, I, since till the time that I didn't feel this personally, 
I did not have that sense of how things happened to, for example, to the previous generation and 90s. Uh, times it was there that I was asking the previous generations to what extent, why they have remained disengaged. Uh, I, I mean, the generation of my father, like those who were working the, with the communist regime, they have decided or they have um, deliberately chosen that they should not engage back into in, in politics. And for them, it was like, well, we have lost our regime. We have lost our state. So that that's it. And, and I, I think... I have come to that the same position now that we have lost whatever we had in the last 20 years, despite the fact that, well, of course, institutionally, there were so many problems, but to not reduce everything to that dimension. I mean, we, we owned it uh, to a large extent. Now, I, of course, I didn't have any other choice except to leave the country. Uh, even before fall of Kabul, things were getting tense. And, um, personal attacks on vocal civil society activists, those who are outspoken in academia or media circles, uh, intensified. And, and as it was dirty, chaotic war that no one was taking responsibility for it. So yes, we, and I, I had to face this moral dilemma that whether we shall stay with the people, uh, most of them who didn't have this chance to leave the country and and somehow to to put up something probably some and most of my, uh, the times in our in my circles with friends we were discussing what what options do we have uh, if to, things turn worse like the fall of the takeover of Kabul by the by the Taliban uh, we were discussing multiple things and of course one was this moral dilemma that whether to stay or leave right uh, but I have to say, Omar, we were pretty worried about you at that time. You know, there was a, you know, something that we haven't talked about is there was a targeted assassination campaign against scholars and intellectuals and people in the media. And, uh, you know, so that, that wasn't just, I mean, of course, the t issue of terrorism was on everyone's mind and, and suicide bombings were, you know, a daily event in Kabul. But we were really concerned about you and your safety. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that you yeah. must have felt that. Exactly. No, that, that's true. And, and um, so things qualitatively also changed in the last couple of months. Uh, and, and, and that's why uh, I think the, the things that we were discussing uh, were about how can we build certain form of level of protection for us as an individual, uh, but also to ensure that whatever meaningful contribution that we do to society could happen in Kabul or in Afghanistan. And we were thinking about if we stay in Kabul, to what extent our contribution might be meaningful. Because of the fact that day, day by day, that space was shrinking and it was getting suffocating. So so that's why, uh, yes, we had to opt for certain other alternatives because it was a systematic failure. It was not something at the individual level. And we had, I think, at, by, the, by days approaching 15 August, the individual's influence over dynamics, over the system, was reducing. Uh, could I, can I ask you, I mean, this is so dramatic, the, 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 the assassination uh, attacks, you, you, uh, you made reference to, uh, you were getting personal attacks and threats, um, and then you're talking about systemic. I mean, to what extent, what was the sort of mechanism behind this? It was, it was, it was, it, was it tightly controlled by the Taliban? Was it a, a certain kind of... Um, uh, mob mentality that was 
sympathetic to the Taliban that was turning on civil society? Was it orchestrated from some central thing that that you mm -hmm. were getting these threats? Do you have a sense of of how that was orchestrated at all, and what the the um, the mechanism for all that was? Uh, is there is there any sort of sense what was behind it, or was just this sort of the walls are closing in and it's getting more and more dangerous? Uh, yes, so I think this was this was not a new pattern. I suppose if you follow the trajectory of conflict in Afghanistan since 1980s, uh, to a large extent, Taliban learned lessons from the previous insurgencies uh, in the country. And I, I remember factually there, if you go back to 90s uh, and late 80s, Mujahideen also endorsed the same sort of technique to to terrorize society. And there were deliberate attempts to target, for example, bureaucrats, school teachers, civil servants um, by the end of prison Carmels in the 80s and uh, prison Najib in the 90s. So um, we don't have exact data, but some intellectuals have already reflected on this. To what extent, for example, Kabul University was threatened with this wave of terror uh, by Mujahideen. But Taliban did the same thing. Uh, it was to a large extent orchestrated, uh, well-planned, organized. It was not something mob mentality, you may say. Of course, the, the conflict has Islamized Afghanistan at, at the societal level. Um, and, but, but that sort of mob mentality appeared as certain cases we have. For example, I remember in 2017, um, that uh, there's one popular incident uh, in Kabul, which is called Farakhanda, mob killing. Uh, who, this was a lady who was accused by, by common people um, on the street that she insulted Quran and tried to burn it. Um, so she was tortured and killed by the mob on the street while, while all the others, they mean the, the, were just passive observers. Uh, that sort of radicalized mentality existed, but of course, because of the state authority to a large extent, we didn't have numerous incidents of that. But this was, yeah, controlled by the Taliban. Now, the recent report, I think yesterday we had a report by Washington Post, which indicated how Taliban infiltrated to, in different institutions, including civil society, including United USAID, including governmental institutions, which... Uh, which I think it was an intelligence failure that knew and know to what extent the system has been uh, infiltrated by the insurgents. So uh, they knew well uh, how things are organized in the city. They know how state functions. They knew how society is organized, social stratification. I think even Taliban uh, intelligently used all these social layers, both in Kabul and provinces, to, to climb up. And and once things went in their favor by mid-August, I think that soft collapse of state. I mean, to most of the provinces, there there wasn't, I, I think, uh, armed conflict. Uh, for example, in the East Jalalabad, it was just the governor uh, surrendered his office to the Taliban governor. So, yeah, so the, the, to that extent, it was, I think Taliban proved how, uh, competent their insurgency was. And, and just so we have a sense of the timeline, you were in Kabul until when? I well, I, I was in Kabul till 17th August. Uh, yeah, two days after fall of Kabul, I still I was there. 
Did you have any, I mean, so early on, obviously, the Taliban tried to present itself as somewhat reformed, even the word moderate was used occasionally. Um, and they did say certain things that suggested that they were at least a little bit different from the 90s. Obviously, a lot of this turned out to be mere rhetoric. But I mean, early on, there were some efforts by folks like former President Hamid Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah to try to negotiate constructively with the Taliban and to and and there was some let's say mild guarded optimism that there could be room for non-Taliban members to be part of the transition um or whatever you want to call it that didn't turn out to be the case and we know that now but at the time did you have any hope that there could still be a place for you and others like you um in in this transitional state, or you you were pretty certain right away that there was no hope with the Taliban. Well, I think this is somehow related to one of the key questions I remember you raised in one of your books that after decades of speculating on what Islamists would do when they come to power, uh, we had certain form of answer. You you raised this with respect to I think Muslim Brotherhood in two thousand eleven and later on. Daesh in, in Syria and Iraq, I think. And you call this a twin shock. And this was, I think, for us, this is a third shock. Uh, after these two Islamist movements in, in West Asia, we had the, the Taliban as the first uh, militant Islamist group coming from the Ubandi background who are establishing a state or controlling political power. Now, of course, there was a, diff- a kind of discrepancy between um, the, their ideology at the bottom level of their movement, uh, ranks and files, and what was stated in a diplomatic kind of sessions in Qatar or at their top leadership. Um, most of the, uh, as policymakers, also the politicians in Kabul, but also the West, they were somehow misleaded between, uh, in this kind of discrepancy because they just observed what Taliban promised and they trusted that whatever it was promised by the Taliban. Right, uh, the Taliban strategically tried to rebrand themselves as that they are not illiberal anymore. They they cautiously say that well, they respect, for example, right of women, but quote unquote within they were saying that qualifying this within Islam or Sharia law, as it was stated in Sharia law, or for example, equality of um, gender equality and modern rights and all that, so on and so forth. However. I think uh, the way uh, we knew the, the trend of Islamization at the societal level, this was something very illusionary. Um, even non-Taliban, for example, sometimes if you had come across someone who was a bit religious and you okay, start a bit of conversation about this nature of democracy in Muslim world, the prospect of a liberal state and all that, you would have realized what to what to a certain extent, there are powerful uh, illiberal thoughts. So, yeah, that one, and at the same time, the core fundamental principles which defines ideology of the Taliban, primarily the Pakistani Diubandi movement, um, there also a certain form of discrepancy existed in the sense that, for example, the Pakistani Diubandi political parties do accept election, at least in principle, and they do contest elections. They they win elections also, right? They, they do not go against the mainstream politics, democratic politics. But now 
Taliban since 1996, they never endorsed elections. They never endorsed democracy and, uh, and always tried to distinguish their political system as an Emirate Islami, which is qualitatively different from the Western model. So I uh, personally, to me, uh, it was clear that uh, the Taliban has not changed. Uh, whatever it was stated, for example, by Ambassador Khalilzad, it was just there to serve certain political purpose and certain political agenda, while on the ground, realities were quite different. Um, so, I, so that's why Taliban, in terms of their uh, political idea or ideology, they are constituted of two core principles. One is this very conservative uh, Pakistani Dubandi uh, ideology, uh, which comes from a network of madrasas and the and the both sides of the border. Uh, but at the same time, the other dimension of it is also that tribal conservative mindset of uh, 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 certain Pashtun uh, um, rural communities. Which, uh, which provides uh, Taliban this certain form of social capital, social space to recruit people and also mobilize people. So that's why I think if you see the, 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 their recruitment base, their social capital, you will appreciate the fact that they have not changed. So Omar, can I ask you, you know, the, the, the really challenging thing about this is, is you know, Ashari does a lot on democracy himself and but you know the other way to to look at all of this is you know it's an ongoing civil war to a certain extent, and so clearly the United States was hell bent on getting out. Clearly, uh, if Khalil Zad wasn't lying to himself, he was playing a very cynical game in this. If he's uh, you know if he if he if he didn't know exactly what he was doing already, um, but the 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 question that just popped into my mind to hear you speak here is the fact that as you said uh, you know the Taliban have this social capital in the Pashtun areas. Um, one another way to sort of phrase that is that they have they have local legitimacy in a lot of these sort of places, and I mean maybe you can speak to that whether now from talking to people who are still back there or you know if you have a sense uh, how how that sort of whatever legitimacy they came in with as victors and still with the sort of Pashtun uh, uh, hinterland that is their their base of support uh, how is that looking and then maybe you know. If you, I know I'm sure this is very hard to, especially it's still so close to to everything. But you know the 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 question that that always looms in the back of my mind, you know, as as an American looking at all of this, and then looking at some of the statistics that are coming out now with the famine and the economy being such as it was so dependent on the on on foreign aid and and uh, and the backing up of the international community. Um, I, how could have this been done better while still uh, you know, to a certain extent, meeting this deep political need in America to to disengage to some extent. If you can sort of, I don't know, take any part of that you like and, and just run with it a little bit. Uh, well, on the issue of legitimacy, uh, uh, I think this was this is the concept of legitimacy. Legitimacy is one of the core uh, issues which has remained unresolved in Afghanistan, and that's why. Uh, Afghanistan is going to this repeated cycle of uh, collapse of political order uh, because that sort of balance which is required at the top political level has not been identified and established. Uh, Afghanistan is quite complex in terms of its social fabric and in terms of its cultural diversity. To brand it only a tribal society is not correct. Um, and also to, to say that, for example, Afghanistan is a monolith 
uh, is not correct. Uh, of course, there are um, transformations. The, in the last 100 years, the state building project has heavily transformed society. You have ethno-national groups who are detribalized, for instance, uh, completely. You have the Persian speaker Tajiks who are integrated into, into a broader Persian civilization in terms of art, culture, poetry, uh, uh, mystic Islam, for instance. Uh, so they relate to that kind of larger civilizational kind of order. So, uh, so you, then we had a, a political order in the 20th, early 20th century, which was based on kind of monarchy uh, as a one pillar of legitimacy for the state, but at the same time, uh, the, the kingship as another pillar of legitimacy. So that's why most of the anthropologists argue that these two, um, the uh, kingship, uh, and also the, the kind of certain form of uh, very traditional Islam, not politicized Islam, would have served uh, as a two factors reinforcing certain form of political order in 20th century. But, but that was later on challenged, uh, these two pillars. Now, moving on towards a kind of uh, a modern form of democratic order, Afghanistan was not able to find out or settle certain form of formula in order to, while it's moving or abandoning that traditional pillars of authority and legitimacy, it should settle with something new. Now in tribal areas, of course, uh, it remain, again, that certain, you have certain communities which are egalitarian and they remain to be autonomous and they wish to remain untouched by any sort of external intervention, whether it should be a state from Kabul or any other kind of authority. Uh, but at the same time, you have other sorts of tribal communities which are not egalitarian, but they, since they have been associated with the state, for example, primarily the, the Southern Pashtuns who have been traditionally ruling Afghanistan last 200 years, I suppose. So for them, it is quite, it's somehow different. Uh, so what I am trying to argue, I think if I'm trying to articulate it properly, is that while tribe, tribal customary codes and certain functions are parts of the, the country still remain to be quite persistent and hence they shape politics. Now in other parts of the country wherein you don't have this tribal structure, tribal customary codes, they are, unfortunately, they have not been able to forge certain form of political order or alternative political order in order to co-opt these tribal areas also within itself, right? Now, democracy, uh, democracy in last two decades was a hope in order to accommodate all these multiple layers of social diversity. Now, however, what happened? Because democracy came with certain form of challenge to the traditional authority of the dominant ethnic group. That's why the four or six elections which were there for parliamentary elections and the presidential elections, most of them were fraudulent. And these were not just abrupt, very uh, disorganized fraud, but it was very orchestrated. Uh, uh, kind of industrial fraud in order to, to not allow a democratic system which, which challenges that traditional uh, hierarchy of power. 
and Afghanistan. So, yeah, so it's, I think, a crisis of legitimacy which leaves Afghanistan in such sort, such form of uh, chaos and, and disorder. So, you know, I mean, uh, Jen, you might jump in here because last time you were on, we, we, we touched on this a lot. And a lot of your work actually is about this kind of, you know, reconciling uh, and having, you know, various sort of forms of order, order coexisting uh, along each other. I mean, um, could it have could it have been different? I mean, obviously, many things could have been done differently, and um, we, we can get trapped in, in thousands of, of rabbit holes. But just this question of 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 getting uh, of reconciling competing legitimacies, I think Omar it's laid it out very nicely. This sort of you know 130 years of of, of modern Afghan history. Uh, I don't know. You say something about that, Jen. What what what's what's how do you see that? Well, I, that that is the fundamental issue that remains unresolved. Right. And as Omar said, like Afghanistan just finds itself in this vicious cycle. And I actually I wrote a piece, I'll, I'll share it with you for your show notes. The vicious cycles of state failure is that it precisely what Omar's talking about is that no political leader has understood, at least in the past 40 years, that in order to rule society, you kind of have to tie your hands. And each each set of politicians who comes in to run the country has a vision. And that vision is often out of step with with people. And I would put the international intervention of the past 20 years, right, in in that category, um, is that all of the decisions come from the top, people are not included in the bottom, and there's no consensus. And so the legitimation process never really congeals. And the periods where you've seen peace in Afghanistan come from the during those periods where, you know, rulers sort of lay back and they allow people to do what they want in their communities, and you don't have an incredibly strong state. Um, but you have peace, you have stability, and then you know a state sort of moves, builds slowly after that. But you know, one of the things I'm really curious about, you know, Omar, um, you know, hearing you say all of this is um, the Taliban face a legitimacy crisis right now, right? Um, I'm just you know looking at all of this, looking at how they're governing. Uh, looking at how they came to power, they seem really quite surprised by it. How are they going to, I mean, are they going to fall into the same legitimacy crisis that all the other rulers have fallen into? Is that that they fell into 20 years ago, right? Ruling from the center, not really incorporating voices. Uh, and then you get this vicious cycle all over again, where they they rule for a bit, put their people in, and then the state collapses all over again. Exactly. They will... My sense is that, of course, they will repeat the same mistake. But, uh, but also, I think if you look at the pattern of governance that Taliban presented in, since '96 to 2001, uh, cleverly in certain uh, areas, they try to adopt local variations, or they try to respect certain form of uh, policy differences. For instance, Taliban's approach towards Shia minority in southern Kandahar was fundamentally different the way they treated Hazara minority Shias in central Afghanistan, the way they massacred them in Balkh and, and, and Bamiyan. That was totally different from how they treated the Pashtun, for example, Shia minorities in Kandahar. Same was, for example, now how they uh, behave differently in Kabul and they behave, for example, in rural areas. Uh, I've heard multiple, from multiple sources that Taliban deliberately after fall of Kabul because when fall, Kabul fall, Haqqani network, which was the, the notorious network, they tried to take over Kabul. So 
Now they realize that while well, most of the, these fighters are so violent, so radical that they cannot tolerate that uh, different order which existed in Kabul, that urban kind of setup. So they strategically send back most of these rad radical fighters from from uh, from Kabul to to their own home provinces. So that's why somehow I think in certain areas they understand that cultural sensitivity, how to treat the urban areas different from the rural areas. However, when it comes to distribution of political power, I totally agree with you that they do, they are following the same very traditional mainstream repeated formula, which is say that stability in Afghanistan will come only through a presidential, let's say, centralized system. So they are, they are also following the same formula. Uh, and it will not, it will not, uh, not only that, but also some certain form of ethnocentrism, very chauvinistic ideology that they have. For example, they deliberately marginalized Persian from public space, from official government bureaucracy. They discriminate uh, the, uh, the non-Pashtuns. Uh, um, for example, now you see from ordinary police officer who is guarding in a neighborhood to the top leadership, almost all of them could not, for example, they, they are coming from a different community that people in Kabul or most of the northern and central Afghanistan cannot relate with them, right? So that remains to the problem of social cohesion between the state and society will remain under Taliban. But, you know, you know, as we're watching this, Omar, just a question I have for you, though, is that, you know, we're saying that, that the, on the one hand, we talk about that there's some regional variation that they are adapting to, you know, different local practices. And then we also, you know, assert that the Taliban hasn't changed. But, you know, let me push you on something just for a second, because, you know, one of the things that captured Americans' imagination about the Taliban 20 years ago was this, the book, The Tight Runner. I'm sure you know it. I'm sure mm -hmm. every Afghan knows this book and that became a movie. And I always remind, you know, so many Americans got to know Afghanistan through this novel. And I remind people that that was a novel. It's not history. Um, but the Taliban banned kite running. The Taliban banned television. The Taliban banned women in public space. The Taliban banned uh, that, you know, everyone had to wear beards. A woman couldn't leave her house unaccompanied. Women couldn't work. And, and now we're seeing a lot of reversals on this. We're seeing women able to work in certain spheres. Girls are able to go to school. Um, you know, of course, not at the university level. But is it is it completely unfair to say that they've completely unchanged and they're not willing to step up to this legitimacy issue that they're they're not learning at all? Well, I I think we we need to differentiate between two things when we discuss certain forms of examples that you give. One is um, the political dimensions of decision making. The other one is the hardcore religious policy. It is this question is raised multiple times when, uh, with respect to Muslim uh, mainstream movements, for example, not not just Taliban, but how these uh, movements transform from a movement to a political party in order to endorse, for example, politics as a day-to-day -day affair rather than militancy or warfare. Now, Taliban has to face this, while during the warfare, it was only that very conservative uh, traditional Ubandi ideology defining their behavior, their attitudes toward the society, individual women, for example, towards the nation state or towards democracy or international community now to, you know, with respect to the United States. Now, as they n rule Kabul and they should behave 
not as an insurgent, rather as a government or as a state, they have to uh, abandon that kind of certain behavior that they had as a movement. Well, and I do not think now that there is a fundamental change in that core principles of Dubandi ideology that Taliban top leadership and rank and file do follow and they endorse it. Uh, because that requires a very substantial form of reform in that sense, that we need to come up with, with, uh, with uh, how, for example, we reconcile those beliefs with respect to multiple issues, with, with modernity and a modern life, right? Such kind of debate and discussion actually does not exist within the Taliban movement. Uh, I have not come across, at least, any kind of substantial evidence to show that, for example, Taliban has debated these issues, for example, how they should rethink women's rights, gender equality, let's say, education, for example. So certain debates, these debates are, for example, absent. Now, that's why I am saying if Taliban behave differently only in few instances, like they have allowed music only in Kabul, let's say, uh, that is not just, that is not the indication of departure from the core ideological beliefs, but that's kind of an instrumental, uh, instrumental, how do you say, uh, shaping of politics, probably for the service of their religion. Uh, it's, it's a dilemma, right? In this incident, I, I don't know how can we resolve it, whether the Muslim well, Islamist movement, they instrumentally use religion for political purposes or other way around. Well, perhaps one could say that we don't really need the Taliban to change its core ideological beliefs because that's very challenging. But what we do want or need is for the Taliban to behave differently. And behavior isn't always the same, obviously, as core beliefs. People can be compelled to do things they otherwise wouldn't do if there is significant pressure, which brings me to what I think is you know, a difficult dilemma for the U.S. and the international community, which is what do we do about the Taliban? On one hand, the Taliban is the government of Afghanistan. There's no obvious alternative that will take its place in the near future. Um, and, you know, there's also the concern that, you know, should, we don't want to necessarily encourage um, armed rebellions that will that will exacerbate civil conflict and violence. And then we have this sort of endless situation. So it's there as a given. But on the other hand, we see the Taliban as something close to, if not evil, then at least really, really bad. And, you know, we don't necessarily want the Taliban to succeed, to put it mildly. But at the same time, if they're governing, then um, we also don't want Afghanistan to go into destitution and poverty and, and just be destroyed for the coming 5, 10, 15 years. So, I mean, to what extent, you know, if you're talking to a U.S. policymaker, how should they navigate this dilemma? Should the goal be to try to incentivize the Taliban to behave better irrespective of what the core ideological beliefs may or may not be. We know not what is in the hearts of men, but we can judge and we can measure actual behavior that we see. So should mm -hmm. the U.S. be basically using the leverage it has to compel the Taliban mm -hmm. to improve its behavior on various metrics? Mm. Well, I think uh, historically, to put it in a historical context, I think U.S 
has always has faced a certain form of dilemma in terms of its engagement with the Islamist or Islamist movements. Uh, while, for example, I think uh, since 90s uh, onwards, uh, used try to abstain from engaging directly with most of the, for example, in West Asia and North Africa, with Muslim Brotherhood in order to not jeopardize its strategic relationship with the allies, for example, uh, Egypt or Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, there was also a kind of certain form of appreciation that, well, uh, United States cannot uh, draw a certain very generic form of policy with respect to all Islamist movements. So that's why I tried to engage with different uh, parties or movements in different countries differently. For example, while in post-Arab Spring, the United States tried to engage with Tunisia or Morocco, the Islamists, but when it came to Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, they didn't do. Now, in terms of Taliban, also this dilemma exists. Uh, and it is not just about the level of radicalism which, de- which defines the use dilemmas, but also other factors, for example, geopolitical fault lines. Uh, uh, this is because now Taliban uh, have been to a large extent in Afghanistan now uh, is under dominant influence of Pakistan and its uh, Pakistani interests could not be ignored now in terms of any kind of whether do you engage or disengage with the Taliban. And Pakistan as an ally of the United States will play a very determinant role in determining policy of the United States. That's one uh, second one. Third factors, I think, emergence of uh, much more Salafi movement, which is ISKP, Khorasan, uh, in Afghanistan. And that also somehow co- complicates the, the U.S. foreign policy calculus. Uh, this was somehow the same thing that uh, Muslim Brotherhood, as far as I, if I remember correctly, that some of the leadership of Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt warned uh, U.S. policymakers to, to, uh, that if, if they try to bypass Muslim Brotherhood, the alternative will not be liberals, rather the alternative will be uh, ayats, which is Salafis. Now, Taliban play the same thing. They will tell, they tell the international community and the world that, well, if you do not engage with us, there is a high risk that a much more radical faction, which is ISKP, will emerge and that will threaten you. Uh, now, how, how do you should go forward? Number one, I think uh, Biden administration to a large extent blames all this failure and catastrophe to, to local actors. While we do not neglect that, uh, as, I, as we discussed at the beginning of this talk, uh, but I, I think, first of all, the U.S. and the Biden administration should appreciate certain form of failure, which, which, was, which somehow defined the character of this withdrawal or peace deal. It was actually now it's clear for all of us, Ambassador Fazal Maishal is say that it was not a peace agreement. It was just a withdrawal, negotiations for withdrawal. Um, that's one thing. And, and also in, in intellectual or policy circles, um, there is no, I do not see any form of criticism towards the administration and how things unfolded in Afghanistan. For example, while President Donald Trump was criticized the way, for example, he treated Kurds in Syria, right? Now, that sort of criticism does not exist. Second issue is, I think, um, the, uh, the U.S. administration should clearly condemn some of the Taliban atrocities. So far, I have not seen that one. Taliban commit mass crimes in certain cases, for example, with respect to Tajiks and Azaras. They have 
committed um, uh, mass killings uh, or atrocities against the civilians, who, those who are not militants, right? And, and land discriminations and all that. That those things should be condemned. Thirdly, uh, I think youth also should not be should be cautious with respect to humanitarian aid which is, of course, necessary in order to prevent that catastrophe which is unfolding in Afghanistan. Uh, now we have, in terms of delivery of hate, we have two different examples. We have example of Iraq during Saddam Hussein, but at the same time we have during Clinton and the way uh, aid was administered in North Korea. Uh, and I think in North Korea, uh, to say that, uh, well, the government tried to divert it in order to reinforce its own military, right? The food and fuel. So that sort of thing should not happen in Afghanistan, that the Taliban may highly likely, they will use humanitarian aid in order to reinforce them. For example, this is evident because while Kabul ambulance, for instance, uh, as a fact, does not have fuel to, to serve the patients or the people, but Taliban do organize uh, military show off and parade across Kabul city and other provinces, right? That's number one. Secondly, most of the Taliban high-ranking, just two days ago, their prime minister said, well, we didn't come here to deliver or promise services or food for the people. You can ask God for it, right? So th if they have such kind of mentality... That was pretty of shocking. Course, that was really yeah. shocking to hear, right? Exactly. That you just said, like, we don't, we don't care. We're not here mm. to feed you. Right. I mean, I, I don't know. That was well. So, yeah. so you know, I mean, I, I, th it's just, it's, a, it's a really tough dilemma on the one hand because I think you know, I, I take several of your points just to sort of summarize here. One being, you know, uh, it's, it's fine, not really fine, but you know, at least it's, it's politically, cynically understandable to uh, try and pass the buck on, on stuff when you're. You're getting out, and your immediate reputation is what it is. I, you know, I, I think uh, Shadi and Jen, in particular, were extra horrified at Biden. But I, I understand the context under which Biden was operating when he did that. That said, at this point, the calculus is completely different, and I think it's, you know, uh, on the one hand, the the failure of the American project in Afghanistan uh, is partly to blame by the fact that, that in fact, the country is now, not just that the withdrawal was botched and so abrupt, but in general, this is, that the country is so uh, deeply dependent on, on, on aid to then withdraw it like this, that's definite agency. So there's, there's some kind of, should be some kind of sense of, of responsibility. But then again, uh, Omar, what you're pointing out is, is um, you know, how do you do this? How do you make good on this when you have a, you know, a regime that's, you know, uh, certainly not as totalitarian and in control of the societies in North Korea, but but every bit as willing to you know manipulate these things and 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 perhaps uh, you know use the aid for its own purposes. So I don't know. I mean, Jen, you chime in here as well. Like, um, you know, I mean, there's, on the one hand, there's the there's the theory. What you were saying, Shadi, there's no there's no alternative at this point. Uh, Maybe one can incentivize and, and really condition this aid to prevent the worst of it happening. On the, on the other hand, uh, not just you incentivize and publicize some of these crimes, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, let, the, let the Taliban try to rule and then squander their own legitimacy if they fail. I mean, as you said, this is, that's a, a really shocking statement for, for any leader to make. So I don't know, Omar, like, how do, where do you fall down on this? I mean, is there, 
is there a means of engaging and conditioning some of this aid right now and paying more attention and being engaged without necessarily, uh, you know, going all in for some kind of renegotiation, which is just completely impossible from the sound of things at this point? Jen, go ahead. Well, I mean, I, I said very facetiously that, well, first, I think there's a lot of assumptions that we're making about aid and legitimacy. And if we learn anything from the past 20 years, uh, and, and not just the past 20 years, if we look at a lot of these interventions, I'm not necessarily convinced that all of this aid actually builds legitimacy. And, you know, what I said facetiously, I think I sent on a tweet was, you know, if we want to delegitimize the Taliban, send a bunch of USAID consultants to all the ministries, you know, and have them run things. Because that's actually what undid the previous government. The Taliban has more, I mean, they're nothing, I think, delegitimize them in the eyes of their core constituents more than bringing aid, right? And and seeing them propped up in, in that manner. I mean, the way that, uh, I think it's, it's, there's no easy answer to this. I don't think that the, the, the Taliban are going to have to gain legitimacy through the same ways that you know we've criticized the previous governments of of failing to do it, which is by respecting the dignity of people. I don't think that public goods and services and all of this stuff wins hearts and minds. You you win legitimacy by treating people kindly and fairly and with honor. And the Taliban don't really seem to be prepared to do it. And the longer the famine goes on. You know, the, the, I think one of the big questions we have to ask is like, what do we know about state failure? How to, how does this happen? Well, often, you know, so often what we know from sub-Saharan Africa is those subsidies get pulled and people start preying on their on their own citizens. So you have, you know, this this clique that's supported by external forces, and when that preying happens, when that money goes, that's when leaders really become predatory. And I think that's the big the big uh, danger right now, not just the famine. But the real cruelty through which the Taliban uh, are, are going to face citizens, because look, they've been propped up just like everybody else. That money, their money's gone too. How are they going to replace it? I mean, they're going to grow more opium. Okay, that'll do so much, but that's that's not going to be enough for them. But so, Jen, uh, yeah. say, say some bit more though, because I'm I'm a little confused there. What's the what what's the the what would you say is the right thing to do from the United States perspective at this point? Because I mean, I think that's the. That's the question. I mean, maybe say right and strategic if what you want. If you want to say right? that, because is- well, the the correct thing to do in the sense because I mean, in case re, you know our listeners aren't following that closely, I, I really yeah. encourage them to Google a little bit about the 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 real enormity of the state collapse. I think I think Omar has done a, a fine job sort of outlining it. But I mean, this is a a level of I've I've seen it described as historic. Really, I mean that that we haven't seen historic famine something this quickly. Uh, this big of a collapse, a whole open up. I mean, at some statistics, it's 45% of the country's GDP, uh, is, is dependent on foreign aid. And they're saying like 97% of the country is about to drop below the poverty line, uh, as a result of this. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really big. And what I was getting at earlier is again, you know, I, I yes, at the end of the day, anarchic international system, what's, what's responsibility, et cetera. But at the same time, you know, I mean, just as we discussed this right now, it's the United States has been involved intimately in the running of this country for a very long time. And it sure it can walk away from it. And sure, that's fine uh, on some sort of amoral plane. But it, it's, you know, it's it's a stain uh, and having this kind of historic collapse on its hands. It's it's a kind of stain. So 
I guess that's what I mean by correct. Well, is and it, is yeah, it, is so, and it depends, right? And and this is the the fundamental question. And you know, it's one that I'll throw back at Omar. Is you know, is the do you help people? Is is your goal? I mean, I, I've I've seen these policymakers right now sort of bend themselves in contortions to see how aid can get to Afghanistan without going through the Taliban. I think that's really impossible. And and number like we've been funding the Taliban indirectly for a very long time. Um, so we could try to do that, but isn't, you know, is our fundamental goal to get rid of the Taliban or is our fundamental goal to provide aid to the Afghan people? Right. So, and that's when you say, what is the right thing to do? Well, what is our goal? And I would say our goal is to help the people of Afghanistan. They don't need to pay for all of our mistakes for the past 20 years. They've paid enough. Right. So that's what I would say. I don't know, Omar, where do you stand on this? I think this is, there's no easy answers to this. I don't think. No, exactly. There's no easy answer, but I think we, we, I mean, by we, people of Afghanistan have not learned our lessons from our history. Uh, and I think in 95, right, the time the Taliban came to Afghanistan and emerged as a political militancy, militancy force, Afghanistan faced a kind of very bold, a very unusual kind of drought. And, and, and if you observe behavior of Taliban with respect to how people were suffering there back then, I think they were to a large extent indifferent. For them, it didn't make sense whether how to, whether to, um, design policies to come out or elevate people from that kind of miseries. Uh, so that's why I believe that either humanitarian aid or any other kind of uh, developmental aid may not have so much uh, influence in terms of changing behavior of Taliban, um, merely because of the fact that they they're they're behaving ideologically, uh, and and most of these are for them not man-made. While the literature and political science says that famine and drought are not natural and they are quite man-made, but they, the Taliban think differently and behave differently. Now, it is now question: How can we deal with a group that they? Uh, are not sensitive to all of these as a as as a, as a state. Um, so yeah, of course, in the last twenty years, in different ways, through contractuals, for example, the way uh, United States indirectly fund the Taliban and their insurgency, that that sort of thing could could be prevented, but it's somehow quite challenging now. But of course, I do think that we need to differentiate between these two uh, between two things. One is to um, support people, at least for the short term, um, and prevent certain form of human catastrophe in the coming year or at least this winter. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, we need to find out an answer. What are we going to do with the Taliban? Of course, the West now, everyone has accepted this is a new normal and we don't have any other option except to accept Taliban as, a, as an authority. But now, still, uh, for most of us, it's, I think, uh, not upon the West or international community to, 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 to have a final say on this. I think it's the people of Afghanistan who should have a final say whether we want to accept Taliban or not. Now, having foreign sanctuaries, having being tied in a very um, uh, regional and interna international network of terrorists or drug trafficking Taliban was able to reinforce their rule in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and it's quite challenging now to, 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 uh, to challenge them back. But uh, yeah, I think options should remain with people of Afghanistan, how they define their 
future with the Taliban. But so uh, listening to both of you, I, I mean, first of all, it's quite clear that there there is no solution. I mean, as we know, most problems in life and certainly in politics don't actually have solutions. And sometimes there's a certain kind of wisdom in not proposing something because there is no proposal that will actually address the concerns. But um, but I but it does sound to me like if if the fundamental goal is to help the people of Afghanistan, not just in the near term, the coming few months, but for a longer period of time, um, it, I, 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 I just fall back to this point that I don't see how you can do that without more engagement or attempts at engagement with the Taliban, because you can try to, you know, as we've been talking about, you can try to disperse aid and get around and get around the Taliban and and find this this sort of elusive middle ground. That's very difficult to do. And even if you do do it, it doesn't have the kind of effect that you need if you want to address potential 97% poverty rate, right? Um, and there is no way to know what the Afghan people actually want. There is no mechanism through which to do that because democracy doesn't exist in Afghanistan. So for the time being, we won't know what the people of, of Afghanistan actually want. So um, I don't know. I mean, where, where does that leave us? I mean, one question maybe to, to try to push the ball forward a little bit here is, what is U.S. policy currently? I mean, Omar, you, you said that the international community is basically accepting the Taliban. Um, but as far as I can tell, there isn't actually any real relationship between the U.S. and the Taliban. I mean, we're obviously still keeping the at arm's length. We haven't released frozen, um, frozen funds uh, for civil servants, so on and so forth. So there still is this, not, this lack of normalization. And that's probably good for the time being, but that's not sustainable. At some point, we presumably have to make a choice. Are we going to try to build uh, some kind of working relationship with the existing authorities, or are we going to withhold um, withhold uh, recognition or legitimization of the current authorities? Is that a fair? Is that a fair way to put it? Yes. I well, uh, let me just uh, put them. Little bit of argument on this question of engagement. Uh, uh, I think I also uh, appreciate the fact that we don't have any other option except to 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 engage with the Taliban. However, I also think that any form of engagement should not be unconditional. We need to take our facts straight, and certain principles should guide our engagement with respect to Afghanistan and Taliban. Uh, we need to somehow prevent all those form of false assumptions that led to failure of use policy or failure of nation-building, state-building project in Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Uh, otherwise, uh, any kind of engagement with the Taliban also will, will not be uh, beneficial. I, I think we should not take this for granted that any engagement is the only way. Yes, of course, engagement should be there, but what sort of engagement we will talk about, right? Um, so those principles for me is, I think, first of all, Afghanistan is not the Taliban. Yes, of course, Taliban were able to enforce themselves as a militant group, and now by force they took over Kabul. But that doesn't mean that they are representing majority of Afghanistan. Do you recognize a, them as the government? 
well, I do not as a, as a citizen. No, no. I, but say say oh. that you know you're advising President Biden right now. Biden has a choice to make. Do you recognize? Do you set up an embassy back in Kabul? Uh, do you recognize this government and as as you know as Shadi suggested as an effort to to engage with them to to use the kinds of conditions that you've talked about? What do you do? Well, I think if we uh, answer this question, then I I don't I think that you should open an embassy in in Iran also. Why uses uh, restraining from engaging with Iran, right? I, I mean, in that sense, uh, of course, I understand that Iran poses a probably a fundamental, a strategic threat to the United States, but that's all, same as with the Taliban, right? The way that they are integrated in this international community of terrorists. There is no guarantee. And person, uh, uh, Ambassador Khalilzad says that there, since the fall of Kabul, they don't have any leverage and guarantee the Taliban may not repeat the same thing, right? So, uh, both in terms of radicalism and in terms of security threat. I see Taliban and any, any other terrorist or Islamist movement uh, and even uh, Islamist regime of Iran same. So if, Talib, if the U.S. is engaging with the Taliban, why not with Iran then, right? So that's why I think uh, this kind of policy should be shared both based on practical, pragmatic principles, but, as, but also certain form of moral questions. Yeah, I understand politics is not about morality, but uh, an immoral politics will bring disaster as now people of Afghanistan will suffer. Omar, can well, I, what about, can I just maybe um, just spitball here and just put something out there that isn't particularly well thought out? But what if the Biden administration actually tried to outline in a serious way an Afghanistan policy and they publicly announced in coordination with allies in Europe and so on, that here are the minimal standards that the that um, the U.S. demands or wants in any kind of future engagement with the Taliban to lay that out publicly so people can assess it independently and say, well, we are willing to um, have an aid package that will actually address some of this absolute poverty, the the, the the upcoming famine in a serious sustained way through the w- with the government but only if the Taliban does one two three four now what those one two and three and four would be one of them could be holding elections by a certain period and that's something that you can measure quite easily if the Taliban doesn't do that and doesn't meet that expectation then no aid is forthcoming um, if they do then there's a conversation obviously. Um, other metrics that um, you know, right. uh, I, I don't mm-hmm. know what what we would prioritize, I, but I do think having a, a political process that is not just the Taliban imposing its will should be mm-hmm. a primary consideration. So anyway, if the Biden administration right. outlines these different conditions, and then we hold the Taliban to that, as and then there is a dialogue around whether or not they can meet those conditions. Does that? Right. Does any of that sound reasonable? Yes, of course. And I think uh, certain form of principles or understandings were there. Right? In early September, if I'm not on September third, the Europeans came with as a term which was called back then operational engagement, and with that they outlined at least four conditions. Uh, for any kind of political settlement in Afghanistan. And I think we can now 
uh, apply the same four principles with respect to engaging with the Taliban. And those were, first of all, uh, the Taliban uh, should respect fundamental international values, including human rights values and women, uh, human rights and women rights, number one. Second, they should ensure that they are disassociating themselves with all other international tourist organizations. Thirdly, they should establish an inclusive government in Afghanistan. Um, and I cannot recall the four, fourth one, but uh, but fourth one was also something on the same line. So I think we can still engage with the Taliban with the same things, but uh, any form of now, any form of operational engagement and negotiations with the Taliban should not take place in the absence of a wider representative of Afghanistan. Now, it is a critical question and it's a challenging question. Who are the representatives of the Afghanistan, apart from the Taliban, let's say, and what sort of mechanisms should be defined in order to negotiate, right? It should not be that international community negotiate with the Taliban on behalf of the people of Afghanistan. Of course, the Taliban will counter the legitimacy of such kind of talk and say that, well, it's you guys, Westerns, who are setting the bar or imposing your own conditions for us. Uh, but yeah, that, that is the point that I also want as a citizen of Afghanistan. It's just not the Western principles or standards. So I think we need to, United States and the international community should play a constructive role in order to uh, bring back that very constructive dynamics in order to uh, have this uh, dialogue, negotiation meaningfully between different representative of anti-Taliban or non-Taliban Afghanistan with the Taliban, right? And out of that, they should come up with a solution. Now, of course, it it will be uh, quite difficult because now Taliban has taken over Kabul. And the question for most of them would be, now we have Kabul, why shall we negotiate? Apart from this, all this foreign aid or humanitarian aid, that is, uh, that I, as I said earlier, they are not much prone to be uh, flexible in that sense uh, with respect to all of the, but, but yeah. But don't I, they have an interest in in not seeing complete state failure? I mean, presumably, they they realize that ninety seven percent poverty rate and a famine probably isn't great for their own longevity and power. I mean, if they want to stay in power, um, they they want to um, they they don't they don't mm. want to arouse too much opposition. And obviously, if things go in that direction, where mm. it's just utter devastation, then that makes mm. opposition more likely. It also mm. weak, I mean, it also um, weakens any claim that they're an improvement on what came before. So presumably, those are things that they have to like assess. And perhaps some of them are, are more pragmatic than others. And, and, and I understand that. But um, I just don't see how this is really in their interest uh, in any near term, medium term, long term. Or is that, I mean, unless they just have a completely different way of assessing these things. Well, hasn't that ship sailed? I mean, you know, the, the conditions, Omar, that you've described with the EU, I mean, the, they, the, the Taliban won. What incentive do they have to negotiate with the U.S. or anybody on those terms on inclusiveness? Yeah. I mean, isn't it they, they don't have to do that. And in fact, you know, something that worries me is that the longer this goes on, the worse the famine becomes. I mean, Shadi, to flip to flip your argument, couldn't you also say that it, 
that everybody knows how dependent Afghanistan was on foreign aid. And the longer this goes on, the more blood there is on the hands of the United States. It's easy for the Taliban to say, you know, the foreigners were were subsidizing this country. They took their money away. Look at the consequences. They want us to starve. I mean, it's not good for them on the on the one hand, but it's not good for anybody. But there are ways that they could, you know, easily make that argument. And it looks the optics for the United States and the international community holding aid because of women's rights, withholding aid because of a lack of inclusivity of the government. I mean, the optics of that are terrible. Well, those those two conditions, uh, just from my perspective, don't really seem reasonable. I mean, they're non-starters. So the EU conditions about respect for women's rights, um, we know that the Taliban ideologically is never going to meet a European somewhat liberal standard somewhat. on gender equality or women's rights. I mean, I, I just feel like if you're going into any kind of potential dialogue saying the Taliban has to do that, you're basically guaranteeing that there's going to be no substantive engagement because you're, you're, the expectations are unreasonable. Inclusion, how do you measure inclusion? Is that um, 20% of, of the government, of the cabinet, do you count ministries? Do you count bureaucrats? Um, and who, who, who do we prioritize inclusion with? Um, and that, that doesn't seem like it's also a good faith condition because it's very hard to quantify and assess objectively. Mm. So I think we also have to be realistic. If we're going to put forward conditions, they have to be things that are actually plausible and also measurable. Mm. Well, in terms of, if I may, uh, Shadi, and uh, yes, I do agree that there should be measurable, but inclusivity does not necessarily mean just power sharing in terms of percentages, 20% or it versus 80% and executive necessarily, as it was practiced, unfortunately, in the last uh, 20 years in Afghanistan. Informally, some sort of constitutional kind of power sharing was exercised at the executive level. I mean, uh, we need to move on to a very substantive level of power sharing, which means bringing people to the platform and 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 deconstructing this existing system in a way that enables people at the local level to participate into daily day-to-day affairs of their own communities starting from there and that means radically rethinking a centralized state probably a form of decentralized state right so the inclusion for me at least means that one. Otherwise, this form of power sharing at the executive will reinforce that form of patrimonialism, which is controlled by a certain form of elite, uh, elites from different ethnic groups who claim to be rep- exclusive representative of their own ethno-national community. Uh, I think we should, while we design or uh, kind of define a formula for measurement of inclusivity, we should be cautious of certain other dilemmas that how this inclusivity will not reestablish the old old order or bring back the old corrupt guards, right? And 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 instead of uh, helping people to to come into politics, that will reinforce corrupt elites. Um, yeah. So of course now this will be challenging. But again, as I stated earlier, it should not be EU or the United States flagging these conditions or values to the Taliban, but rather enabling the non-Taliban constancies. And I think we have those constancies 
who have raised voice. I think the the National Resistance Front has clearly put a political agenda. What do they mean by what is their idea of Afghanistan? Right. So one faction or front could be them to to talk with and include them and take them seriously. Right. So they as as the Taliban has claim that they represent Afghanistan, they also have a legitimate right to say that they also represent another portion of Afghanistan, at least. Uh, and, and then I think it's not, that's why I'm saying that it's not somehow impossible to come up with certain measurable conditions or parameters, uh, how to move forward. Just, of course, I, I, we don't have any ready-made solution now at the moment. And if we don't have a ready-made solution at the moment, does not mean that, oh, well, we endorse Taliban, as simple as that. Yeah, no, I mean, so I, we're, we're coming up on an hour and a half of this very rich conversation. Let me just ask you one question. And I think, you know, in the back of all of this, you know, we talked about the Europeans coming in with their uh, demands kind of early. And now we're, uh, we're watching this famine unfold and, and sort of uh, talking about responsibility and, you know, what, what should be done for the people. Um, you know, the flip side of why the Europeans were first out of the gate is because they're terrified of a, of a refugee uh, crisis and, and flows uh, coming into Europe to, you know, we just saw the weaponizing of, of refugees on, on Europe's borders by Belarus with a, you know, staggeringly uh, uh, cynical, cynical play there. But again, you know, what's motivating the Europeans for all their talk of values is, in fact, making sure that half of Afghanistan doesn't show up on their door as, as, uh, as, uh, as refugees, as, as, uh, uh, that that they then need to somehow deal with. So I don't know. I mean, can can you do you have a sense? You know, we we're, we've all read and we'll we'll include some of these articles about the the situation on the ground, Omar. But how dire can this get in the next six months to a year? Um, mm. Not just from a humani- humanitarian catastrophe in the country, but the the spill out from Afghanistan. Uh, Massive refugees flows. How likely is that? I mean, in the winter, perhaps it's it's much more difficult to do this. Um, are there uh, are there still can people leave at this point? Uh, mm-hmm. Are there flights that that you know refugees can get out of? Would that be creating some kind of pressure, refugee pressure abroad? Uh, just give us a sense of of what the the broader sort of global catastrophe like this could could impact and look like. Well, of course, at the moment, even when I speak with colleagues and some friends back home in Kabul, uh, their impression and the picture that they paint from Kabul is it's a, it's a kind of ghost city. Uh, Kabul of pre-15 August, which was very lively, populated, uh, young generation, right? Engaging in different uh, public spaces from universities to cafes to um, other platforms. That does not exist. And that's, of course, that indicates that many people left the city. And uh, and this will continue as, as it happened in 96 when Taliban ruled Afghanistan. And unfortunately for Taliban, that's fine. And they, they will rule on graveyard. Uh, the, now, uh, I think Europeans and international community, to a certain extent, the way they handled uh, Syria refugee crisis, which was around 6.8 or 7 million people, uh, to a large extent, now they have measures to prevent that crisis reaching to Europe. Uh, borders are closed and tightly controlled between, for example, Turkey and Europe, between Turkey and Iran. There's a construction of wall going on. Uh, so I think Europe, to a large extent, they they feel that they are they will not face the crisis as they feel uh, they realized during refugee uh, Syrian refugee crisis around 
7 million people, right? Approaching uh, the shores of Europe. Now, of course, this will uh, affect our immediate neighboring countries, uh, including the Central Asian countries like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, but also primarily Iran and, and Pakistan. Uh, and then they will take advantage on the misery of the people. Uh, I remember, let me share a personal experience with you. When I was evacuated from India, so it happened that some of the journals collect my picture with my family coming out of C-17, I suppose. And it appeared in very prominent uh, South Asian Indian newspapers. Later on, I came to know a friend of me sent me a message, uh, a cartoon made by one of the, um, the companies, which is called Amul. It's a diary company uh, depicting, depicting the same picture of us in, in a different shape as a cartoon and titling it as a, as a rescue mission. Now, I, I, to, to me, that was how capitalism, for instance, misuses or capitalizes over people's misery. It doesn't, it doesn't matter for them how people feel at that moment and what circumstances people were evacuated, right? Uh, what is their personal permission or the consent to be published or not? That doesn't matter. But yeah, the system functions in a way that they will capitalize on your uh, misery and, and yeah, that situation. Of course, this the refugee crisis will happen, I mean, as a matter of fact. Uh, this will impact immediate neighbors. But, but the way Pakistan took advantage of these refugees, mm. strategically, and it is to to draw human capital for the global jihad mission against the Soviet Union and also to draw aid to Pakistan and the region, right? Mm. They will do the same thing. And um, to a large extent, refugee will not be, these refugees will not be a burden to, the, to, to these countries. Rather, it will, they will take it as a leverage to negotiate with the West and even with, the, with their neighboring countries. For example, how Iran and Turkey uh, uses these refugees as a leverage to negotiate over bilateral issues. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Jen, Omar, I, this has uh, been a, a sobering and grim uh, conversation, but thanks so much for joining us. I, I, uh, I, I hope our, our readers will, uh, our listeners will, will pay a little bit more attention to Afghanistan. I mean, it, it's, it's popping up more and more in the news these days, but uh, still, I mean, it, it really is striking that a uh, hundred days in, in so many ways, it just dropped off our radar almost completely. Shadi, so, Demir, I, I was thinking, I was thinking about whether there was a way to end on a vaguely optimistic note. Why do that? The only thing that I could really think of. Mm -hmm. So, when we were talking earlier about conditions and being more specific and 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 measuring some of these metrics, I thought to myself, what if what if scholars like like Jed and Omar came up with a, a roadmap. But once I thought about the word roadmap, I, I realized that that was going to be a disaster because roadmaps don't actually lead to the preferred destination. And a roadmap now is almost shorthand for things not working out. The roadmap with under Bush, Israel, Palestine being one example. So I don't know what we would call this positive thing that lays out the path forward. But I think that they're listening we to be both so skeptical though right i mean 20 years of what the u.s tried to do in, in afghanistan i just i don't think that the u.s 
particular, I mean, that's the hat I'm putting on right now as an American, is can do any of this. And I just, I'm very, very skeptical of our ability to engineer any kind of outcome here. I think Omar's come up with more ideas, better ideas than I've heard anybody in Washington speak of in months. But I'm, I'm very, very skeptical that any of us can, can come up with a roadmap for this. I just think there's so much uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the U.S. government can, but I, I, I would like to think that um, a group of independent scholars of Afghanistan could come to some kind of agreement about what some of the metrics for engagement or dialogue could be and what serious conditions would actually look like. So, you know, uh, but, um, you know, and then, of course, the U.S. could then consider whether or not those I, I mean, there just doesn't seem to be creative ideas that are going into the policy process right now where people are actually laying out what what a vision would look like, what a strategy would look like, and how to and how to measure outcomes. Well what we're seeing is just a lot of people, you know, stuck on these very technical issues about how to get and I'm seeing a lot of very creative solutions here, right? About how to get aid into Afghanistan without giving the money to the Taliban. I'm seeing a lot of you know interesting ideas, but no, I'm not seeing anything sort of the big picture long term how do you engage? How do you deal with this? Um, how do you how do you engage with the Taliban without setting an example for others? Right. I think this is what the U.S. is really concerned about um, in the long run. Is well, you, you know, once you do it, you you set a bad example, right? So hmm. what Shadi is getting at is you've got your work cut out for your for yourselves at your new center, Jen. Well, uh, well no, I think you know when Shadi <laughs> runs for Senate. And then joins uh, the Foreign Relations Committee. Well, yes, holds, as, as holds Senator, yeah. Senator uh, Hamid. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I appreciate that, but I don't know if if I'm going to be elected if I'm proposing uh, a vision for how to engage with the Taliban. I don't know if that's well, going to be very popular with constituents. That Shadi is a, a need as a Pennsylvania son. We are expecting you to take on Senator Oz. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> candidate Dr. Oz, whatever his name is. I mean, Shaddy, step you know, up to it, my friend. Step up. It's time. You want to be. You want to be doing politics. Yeah. Pennsylvania's yours. We all need well, to step up. That would up. be two Muslims running. I, I don't know if he self-identifies as Muslim, but I guess he was. You know, he's originally Muslim at the very least, Dr. Oz. So, uh, some strong Muslim infusion there. Omar and I, we're both. We're here for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. This is great.